From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. You may have been reading on The Conversation our reports on the marginal Sydney seat of Wentworth, where Liberal MP Dave Sharma is in the battle of his political life under challenge from Teal Independent Allegra Spender. We have conducted polling and focus group research in the seat. The work has been sponsored by the University of Canberra's Centre for Change Governance. Now in this podcast, we interview Sharma and Spender and also speak with Karen Phelps, who held the seat as an independent after the departure of Malcolm Turnbull before losing it to the Liberals in 2019. Phelps has been a mentor to Spender, and she's also on the Advisory Council of Climate 200, the fund that's supporting Spender and a number of the other Teal candidates. We start with Dave Sharma before going to Allegra Spender and then to Karen Phelps. Dave Sharma, how different is this election campaign to the two that you've fought before? One that you lost, one that you won. Well, the similarity is that I'm contesting it against an independent candidate again. I contested in 2018 against Dr Karen Phelps and won that seat back in 2019. The difference is, I think, that Karen Phelps was a a genuine independent candidate or a more traditional independent candidate. She'd had a long track record as a public figure, um, long history of community involvement, quite deeply embedded in the community. Um, this independent candidate is really sort of a franchise or party operation, to be honest. Uh, and you see that reflected in the amount of money they're spending, um, but also the similarity of their policy platform uh, and, and branding, but also their inability to, to canvas more than two or three issues. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a hard thing to get to grips with because they don't have a position that they want to offer on the economy or national security or defence um, and they don't want to get off their talking points on uh, climate. Well, even if one accepts the, the franchise description, haven't heard that one before, but nevertheless, it must be quite hard running against Allegra Spender who has this stellar family background as a Liberal. Her grandfather was a distinguished Liberal minister, ambassador to the United States, central in the ANZUS Treaty. Her father was in Parliament. How does that feel? Well, look, I mean, maybe I'm unusual here, but I'm a, um, I'm kind of a uh, very big believer in Australia's meritocratic tradition, which means I don't believe in people inheriting privilege or inheriting seats for that matter, or, or even attributes. I think people need to make the case on their own merit. So if, if the best um, my opponent's got to offer is who her dad and who her grandfather was, or her mother for that matter, uh, I don't think the electorate's going to buy it. Now, it's undoubtedly true. She's got, um, you know, she's, she's had Liberal Party um, ancestry, but um, as far as I'm aware, she's never been a member of the Liberal Party here in Wentworth. She's never campaigned here in Wentworth. She's never been a branch member here in Wentworth. So I don't think you can assert that you're a Liberal just by virtue of the fact of who your parents are. We know, all know of households where the partners vote differently or the children vote differently to the parents. What issues are coming through in the campaign? Well, I think uh, the things I'm seeing and people are talking to me about are um, Australia's global position and the increasing global uncertainty. So Russia's war against Ukraine has come through, spikes in oil and commodity prices that are resulting from that conflict, the Solomon Islands military agreement with China has been a, a big cause of concern, 
uh, cost of living pressures, housing affordability, uh, the economic outlook and particularly inflation and what the inflationary outlook looks like and what does that mean for interest rates and what does that mean for people's mortgages and things like that. Climate, undoubtedly, climate change remains a big issue and how do we accelerate our transition towards net zero emissions. But also, as you'd expect, a whole lot of very local issues, development in certain areas, traffic and road infrastructure, uh, schools, hospitals, parks, playgrounds, recreational facilities, swimming pools, disability access. Uh, these are all things that are very much localised to Wentworth, but reflect people's concerns about the things that really impact on their quality of life. Now, Scott Morrison has been unpopular in these so-called teal seats and is not appearing in them. When was he last in Wentworth and how much of a drag is he on the vote? I think I last campaigned with him in Wentworth in December from recollection and he, he did come and open this electorate office where we're sitting today. Uh, look, I don't put too much stock in people's you know personal popularity or approval. My experience of voters here is that um, people recognise that they're not uh, engaged in a, a pageant to elect someone who they think is the most popular person. They're engaged in a, an election and that involves a serious choice about competing policy alternatives. Um, Scott Morrison's the leader of our team and, and the spokesperson for the team, but it's also got a range of ministers in there who control different portfolios and we're putting ourselves forward and I certainly am here as a team with Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister, Josh Frydenberg as the Treasurer, Anne Rustin as the Future Health Minister, Peter Dudden as the Defence Minister. And that's an experienced team that's, um, uh, that I think has shown that it takes government seriously and will deliver serious policies. There's been a lot of controversy over the Warringah Liberal candidate, Catherine Deves, and her offensive tweets about trans people. Is that having any impact in this electorate? The fear of some Liberals was that uh, in this seat in North Sydney, it would have a, a backlash and that, on the other hand, the Prime Minister is trying to uh, leverage it in, in some other seats where there are large ethnic communities. My sense is no, it's not having much of an impact in Wentworth. I'd, I'd, I think there's a, you know, one of the reasons for that is I think my stance and record on this is pretty clear and unimpeachable to my community that I've, um, I'm supportive of the LGBTIQ plus community and I've stood against attempts um, to, dis or stood against legislation that would discriminate or have the result of discrimination against transgender children. And of course, of course you crossed the floor on this issue. And I crossed the floor on this issue. So I don't think people are in any doubt about where I stand on these issues. And I've also been quite clear in um, disagreeing with uh, some of Miss Steve's particularly inflammatory remarks about transgender people, about um, the Jewish community for that matter as well. Um, so I don't think, I don't, People aren't raising it with me because I think they know pretty clearly where I am on this issue. Do you think that after the election, the New South Wales Liberal Division will have to clean up its act on this question of pre-selections because it was obviously a farce before this election? I think it's undoubtedly true that we have to do things better next time. I mean, I think it's the fact that we were so late to get candidates in the field uh, was a problem um, and I think uh, the fact that we didn't have the time to do the necessary vetting and that pre-selectors weren't involved in this. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat in the sense that I believe in um, party democracy and I believe in the membership of the party having a say in their candidates. Uh, and because of the way things were done this time and for a variety of reasons, some of which I understand, some of which I don't, uh, pre-selectors did not have a chance to choose their own candidates and it's, it's hard to run a campaign if you don't have the support of your local party membership.
So you think that there should be rank and file pre-selections always or except when there are extraordinary circumstances? I think that nearly always. I mean, I think I would almost say universally, you know. Um, I contested a competitive pre-selection to win the Liberal Party nomination here. I think you won, if my memory's right, against Scott Morrison's wish to have a woman. I did, yeah, and against, I think, <laughs> some of the factional preferred candidates. That's right. So I mean, Any hard feelings? No, I don't think so. But perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm a believer in party democracy as a result. And I think, I genuinely think it produces better candidates. It produces people who are closer to their community and it produces, um, uh, it energises the membership in a way that you need to win a campaign. I mean, you rely upon a lot of people giving up a lot of the time to stand at polling booths and pre-poll and commuter stops. Um, and unless you've got people who believe in you and feel like they have a stake in you because they've chosen you, it's, that's very hard to secure. In your campaigning, are you finding that people are really turned off by the major parties at the moment? That's one reason why they're going to independence, or at least at this stage of the campaign, or minor parties? Look, I think there's some truth in that, but I'd give you a slightly different thesis. I mean, I think it reflects populism as a political force, to be honest. People think populism only belongs to the right because of Donald Trump. I think the independents are basically harnessing a populist mood, which is similar to what Donald Trump did, which is a curse on all your houses. The major parties are only in it for themselves. Uh, they can't deliver for us. We need to overturn the apple cart and put in a clean skin, you know, send in a new broom to Washington. This is effectively what the Teal candidates are running on. Um, and it's populist in the sense that it promises uh, easy answers for complicated problems. It doesn't provide detailed programs. It doesn't provide detailed costings and things like that. So th they're harnessing a populist mood, which is, you know, I think probably always present in society to a degree. Parties on the right do it as well. I mean, I don't discount that the UAP is offering a populist platform as well. Um, but uh, the Teal independents, the Simon Holmes Court candidates are definitely playing a populist card. And I think that will always have some appeal because it's hard when you're a major party. You actually have to cost your policies. You have to make political trade-offs. You have to seek to govern for the whole of the country. Um, these one-off candidates don't need to. Now, the, obviously the coalition is running a scare campaign on the danger of a hung parliament. But if there was a hung parliament, would it really be such a problem? Uh, states have hung parliaments very often. Overseas, we have middle crossbenchers having a lot of power. Isn't it just another version of a democratic system? No, I think it'd be quite at odds with our political tradition. You know, we've got a, a Westminster two-party system at the federal level. Um, we have had minority governments uh, in Australia and I think the more recent experience at the federal level from 2010 to 2013 was not a positive one because what we found is that the people on whom the government depends for support for the passage of legislation and, and supply and whatnot um, have quite different and often quite eccentric interests um, that might have no relevance to the government agenda of the day. Um, they might, you know, they're representing a single community, and particularly in the House of Representatives versus the Senate. At least the Senators have a mandate to represent a state. People in the House of Representatives have a mandate to represent about 150,000 people. Um, and you'll have a situation, as we did with Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor and, and in 2010, where um, the local interests of a particular community are often trumping the national interests of an, of an entire nation or a state. And I think that's... Uh, it, what, what it means is that certain 
parts of Australia end up being vastly overrepresented in decision making versus other parts. I don't think that's equitable. I don't think it's a recipe for good government either. Well, they certainly get a lot of stuff, as it were, for the electorates, the, those who are important in a hung parliament. Just finally, you're one of the uh, now prominent moderate voices in the Liberal Party. I think that uh, one of the criticisms that's been made by independents is that the moderates might sound good, but in the end they don't deliver. If you are re-elected, will you fight for moderate causes within your own party? Well, look, I, I will, but I sort of reject the premise of the question, if you like. I mean, with all due modesty, I think I've had a very big impact in my first term in Parliament in terms of um, prosecuting what people what I would refer to as traditional liberal values, which people might refer to as moderate. Um, uh, you know, firstly, protecting the rights and the liberties of the individual. You know, I, I crossed the floor, as, you, as we discussed, on the parts of the religious discrimination legislation, but also in securing a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. I mean, people sort of take it as received wisdom now that that was always going to be done. The last election in 2019, neither major party putting their policy platform a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. If you'll recall, the debate was about different 2030 targets. Um, so I think for a centre-right party in Australia and with Australian political history to adopt a net zero by 2050 target and everything that comes with that, the, you know, the policy measures, um, the tax measures, the regulatory measures you need to achieve that, is a vast um, repositioning, if you like, of the centre-right in Australian politics. And that could only have been done um, because of people like me and people including me in our party room. Now, if that isn't, I think that's going to be an enduring uh, change because we've ended the climate wars in my, in, in my mind and we've got a centre-right party to commit to uh, addressing climate change and not denying climate change. And, and we'll have a debate now, as we should, about the speed of the transition and the policy levers you use to secure that transition. But there's no doubt that we've turned the ship around and we're heading in, in that direction. And I think that's been a big achievement. And it's something I must point out that no independent could have claimed to have done or would have been able to do. This is the difference when you operate in a major party. Maybe ending the climate wars is a bit of a uh, an optimistic uh, assessment of where we are. But there'll still be there'll still be guerrilla breakouts and insurgencies. <laughs> but the com the major conflict is one. The rest is tidying up. Dave Sharma, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Michelle. Allegra Spender. What have been the toughest aspects of this campaign for you? Look, I think it's, it's a volume game. And so just the volume and stamina that you need to run a campaign is enormous. And so volume from a policy point of view, putting all um, the policies together, but also you know, volume in terms of meeting people. Because as an independent, you're not known. You don't have a brand name behind you. So you really have to build from the ground up. Lucky for, for me, we've had you know, now 900 volunteers behind us. And that makes the enormous difference, I think, in this campaign. It's obviously a very expensive campaign. What do you think you'll end up by spending? Look, I think we'll probably spend around one point, we're between 1.3 and 1.5 million dollars. That's an awful lot, isn't it? It is a lot of money. And again, as an independent, you know, you, you, you have to really start from the ground up in terms of getting that awareness out there. And it's, it's, a, it's a really important election. And I think that's why this, it's a really important choice. And we want to give that to the people in Wentworth. Roughly what proportion of that is going to come from the 
Climate 200 fund? So um, less than 30% is likely to come from Climate 200. And I think, you know, for me, we've got literally hundreds of people across Wentworth who have supported, um, you know, support us as well as, you know, some of the 10,000 people who support Climate 200. Many of those are also from Wentworth as well. And you know, I know campaign financing has been an, a topic of this campaign. You know, it is what I think is also really important to note is that you know I'm I'm clear on you know where my funding is coming from and how much I'm spending. I don't see that coming out of the Liberal Party. And even in the most recent you know year where they had around seventy million dollars worth of donations, you know even we only have clarity around less than ten percent of that. So this is a, these are some of the fundamental changes that we need to make to donation laws, which were available for the coalition to change. They not to and so now you know we just have to work with their rules but I will seek to change them if I'm elected. So would you support having a cap on spending in, in campaigns? Absolutely and you know I, I think spending on cap on spending in campaigns and cap on donations you know Clive Palmer spent 81 million dollars at the last election you know he's actually being preferenced um, number two in this seat um, by Dave Sharma, and so you know this is that's coal money buying you know uh, buying votes, and and has been widely credited I think for winning the last election for the coalition. So those are things that absolutely need to change. And what other changes to uh, the donation laws would you like to see? Look, I'd like to see um, I'd like to see cap in um, what individuals or companies can give. I'd like to see um, real time information in terms of what is a what has been given. And then I think at the same time you need to look at political advertising and how that is used because we just spent thirty you know the government just spent thirty million dollars spruiking their their clean energy um, credentials you know immediately before the election being called like that is campaigning you know let's be honest about this. So I think there's actually a fundamental reset in terms of how we fund campaigns so that really it isn't level playing field. Now you come obviously from a, a very credentialed liberal family, your, your grandfather a minister and your father in the federal parliament in the past. What's been the reaction of your family and have you called on your father for some campaigning tips? Yeah absolutely, I remember going um, campaigning with dad when he was in politics, I remember um, going door knocking with him and I remember the day that he lost his seat and he lost his seat to Ted Mack who was an independent so the irony of standing as an independent isn't lost on either him or me. Um, but I talk to dad almost every day about the campaign and you know it's for him and you know for me and actually for a lot of people it's a different Liberal Party, a different coalition to the one that both he was part of and also my grandfather was part of. And so, you know, he and I are actually incredibly well aligned in terms of our politics and, and what we're hoping and seeking to change. Just in terms of being a different Liberal Party, how would you characterise that? Look, I think, um, you know, the Liberal Party, you know, there are a couple of, lots of different ways you can think about it. You know, you look at, um, the, you know, it's good economic management, which is what you know the Liberal Party will say that they are. And then you look at, you know, we've got a trillion dollars worth of debt, no real prospect of, of paying that down. And we saw a budget where you know we spent you know, you know through money at the electorate in when we've already got high inflation. So I look at that and go, well, is that the Liberal Party? You know, you look at what Fraser's attitude was to the refugees, and uh, actually Fraser's attitude to corruption. You know, both areas as a as a real li Liberal leader, but who who was compassionate in his policy 
policies and refugees, recognised the value that they add to the community, and also was absolutely unforgiving about any sense of corruption in, in the party. And you, know, you, you look at actually something like Menzies' focus on home ownership. Um, you know, you look, we're, we're presiding over a period of declining home ownership among young people. It's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a generational shift. These are some of the changes I think that we have seen. Just on this question of debt though, a lot of this debt of course came from the government spending during the pandemic. Do you think that that should have been less? No, look, I, I actually support what the government did during the pandemic. It's the pre-pandemic where we were already um, in from a debt point of view, but it's also now. This is the moment that we have to have a plan to recalibrate you know, our, our spending and make sure that we're spending it in areas that we need it the most. And that's where I'm concerned you know, with the budget where we have you know, billions of dollars of infrastructure projects which are not seen as priority projects. That's not good for our, for our country if we're not spending billions of dollars on, the, on things that matter the most to the, to the country. Just uh, looking to being in Parliament, if you get there, have any of the existing crossbenchers been models for you or mentors to you? Look, I've spoken to some of them and I've followed what they've done really closely. And what I really admire um, from a number of them is what they've is how they've built policy options that have widespread community support. Like you look at um, you know Helen Haynes's um, federal ICAC bill, and that's an example of, of a bill that has you know been widely consulted um, across the community, has strong support across people, um, you know, of think tanks and judiciary. And so I really think that that moderation of bringing people together around a key issue, and Zali Steggles, her climate bill, that has support from the Business Council of Australia and the ACTU and the Farmers Federation. It's actually bringing the community together around policy, which I think I really admire. We know that there's been a fall in trust in politicians and the political system. Do you feel that our current political system is, is broken and is this the message you're getting back from constituents or is that an exaggeration? I think people have, are feeling disconnected and disenfranchised by the major parties. I think there's a feeling amongst the community that I hear that they feel that the parties are looking after themselves first and the community after. And you know, party, party loyalty and, and power for its own sake is really the message. So that's what I feel I'm getting and that's, those are from people across the political spectrum. You know, someone this morning just said to me, you know, my, my 90 year old mother is voting for you. She's never not voted Liberal her entire life, um, but she just feels completely disenfranchised in terms of where politics is going. And I think that's why you're seeing growth in, in you know, independence and also minor parties. So are you, mainly peeling off Liberal voters, do you think, or uh, are you getting some Green votes or taking some from Labor? What, what's the sort of profile of your support as you know it at this point? And I'd say today I had people who said they are Labor voters and Greens voters and Liberal voters who have all said today that they'll support me just up in Paddington this morning. So I think it is really across across the board. Um, and then some people who say they're real swing voters, but there are there, I think it's a, actually a, a broad support across the community and there are different issues that, that cut across uh, different communities that are, I think, galvanising different groups. But climate and integrity, you know, being absolutely two of, two of the key ones, as well as representation of women. Just on climate, the government's obviously embraced the, the 2050 target after some difficulty, but what are you saying needs to be done more on climate at the moment? 
So look, I think it's it's the scientists and the economists are saying it's the next eight years that really, really matter. And so this is about legislated targets in 2030 that will really start to transform Australia's economy. So I'm saying at least a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. That's what the IPCC says the, that we need from, a, um, from an environmental point of view, but it's also what the Business Council of Australia says if we pursue that is in the best economic interests of this country. You know, Liberals have Tony Abbott's 26 to 28 percent as their target in 2030, and frankly, it's all very well to say I'm committed to 20, you know, 20 net zero by 2050. Um, but that's 10 governments away, and if we're not, if they're not putting money in the budget around this, and if they're not actually taking action in the next 10 years, you know, it, it's it's meaningless. So, if you are elected, how will you operate? You, we know that you had climate and integrity as your central issues, but will you be a, a narrowly based independent or will you be trying to get across the whole gamut of issues, economic issues, foreign affairs and defence, what committees would you want to be on, how would you Play it. Um, look, I'm I'm an economist by training, and I've worked in health and education as well as business. So I've got a broad interest. I've actually spent more time in those industries than I ever have in renewable energy. So I'm I'm standing on climate and integrity, but deep down I want better government. And you know, very much it's it's also about particularly for, as an economist and someone who spent a long time in business, I want the economic future of our country. To, to be well, um, to be for us to be well set up. So I'd be very keen to be involved, particularly in economic policy and education policy, because those are areas I have you know, deep commitment and um, and areas where I, I think you know these are important parts of building a better country. Now your opponent and and liberal opponents in other seats where teal independents are running have various lines of attack. One is that these are fake independents because they are part of a, a wide network and the other is the whole question of the hung parliament so if we could go to those things mm. on this fake independent point you do network with the other teal candidates right how does that work to what extent does that work and what's your reply to the fact that you're really a you know a party in in independent clothing. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that you know, I'm standing as an independent and when I come put forward my policies, I consult this community. I don't consult you know, other independents or anyone else about this. I've, you know, I stood um, in relation to saying I think that we need a tax review. That was when I, I spoke to the business community and actually the social services community. My religious discrimination um, position has based on my conversations with the LGBTQI community here as well as the religious community here. So that's how I determine my policies. It's, it's very much as an independent and, and that, is, you know, that is fundamental to me. I wouldn't be standing um, if, I, if I was going to be told what to do. But I know you need to work with people and in business I've always worked with people and you need to be able to um, be aligned and, and you know, be more effective and work together on some issues and work separately. You know, and listening to people like Andrew Wilkie and listening to people like, you know, Zali Stegel and Helen Haynes, it looks like the crossbench has done that pretty effectively. You know, where it's, where it's useful and where there is alignment, they work together. And when their communities are not aligned, they don't work 
together. And I think there is a real unity around climate and integrity in a number of seats. So you have been networking with the other Teals? Mm. I have spoken to them and I've met a couple of them. Um, is that regular communication? No, it's not. It's, it's really about, at various points I've you know, spoken to them, but this is very much a separate, you know, I'm certainly running absolutely my own campaign. I'm watching theirs with interest and have spoken to them at different points, but this is really about saying, what does Wentworth want? Um, and, uh, you know, the people who brought me together, they're Wentworth people. And the 900 people out there on the streets, they're Wentworth people who are supporting this campaign. And that's, that's the difference. This is a community-led campaign. Now, on the question of a hung parliament, which is obviously a big thing in the minds of some voters, you have said that you won't, at this stage, commit. But can you go to the process that you would go through if there was a hung parliament. What sort of things would you take into account? Now, presumably we're just talking here about supply and confidence. We're not talking about a formal deal, right? Absolutely. So I've said that I would be willing to work with either party or major party on supply and confidence because I want stable government and I will, that was, and I will seek that um, and seek to be extremely constructive in the parliament. Um, I will talk first to whoever has the greatest number and I think certainly one of the reasons why I'm not committing in advance is because I don't, you know, we don't know what the election is going to come out. If it's 75, 65, what does that mean? You know, it's a very different message um, to where it's, where it's more evenly balanced. Um, and so I will work with, you know, either, either party on, on the formation of government. And my, what I'm seeking to do is to moderate either party. Because if we get to a situation, there is a hung parliament, it's the Australian people saying, look, we're not really sure they want, we're not extremely committed to either of you. There's a real, there's moderation is desired. And if, if you're a moderate like me, someone who is in the center, I think that can, you can play an extremely effective and valuable moderating influence. Would you take into account that Wentworth is a seat which, while it's been independent before, it's never been Labor. It's not a Labor seat, it's a Liberal leaning seat. Look, I'll take into account the values of Wentworth and, and the values of Wentworth, I think we're socially progressive, we're environmentally focused, but we're very business focused as well. And I think that's been the heart of, you know, why Wentworth has been so liberal for so long. And so I think that's really the heart of, of you know, taking into account the business perspective and the business policies, um, because Wentworth wants to be able to run businesses and they want the economy to be managed in an effective way. Just finally, uh, obviously you have uh, a great deal of power in a hung parliament, but from the point of view of uh, the good of the country, do you favour majority government or do you favour a hung parliament? Look, I think it depends, at, it's probably at different times. And I think if the elect electorate is disengaged and doesn't feel that they're being represented, then I feel that there's a, a great opportunity for minority government to add real balance to, to um, parties. But we've, we've had effective minority governments and we've had very effective majority governments. So it really depends. I mean, I'm in New South Wales, we've got a minority government at the moment, you know, that is working you know, pretty effectively. Um, and, you know, you, and we've had many more minority governments at the state level. So it's, it's about what is good government and good policy, and that's really what I'm seeking. Allegra Spender, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much for your time. Karen Phelps, could we begin by you telling us something about what's special about this electorate of Wentworth? What makes it different from other seats? Well, I know Wentworth very, very well. I've had a medical practice in Double Bay for 
around two decades, and so I know the community well. It's it's generally seen as an affluent community, but it's actually uh, quite diverse. Uh, there are clearly strong beliefs about the economy and, and business, and so a candidate would need to have business experience. But the people also have a very strong social conscience. Uh, they're very environmentally aware, and I think that's uh, particularly highlighted by the fact that it's bounded by the harbour and, and the, the ocean. And uh, we, we hear a lot about the, the wealth of Wentworth, but the majority of people in Wentworth live in apartments and a lot rent their homes, and, and, uh, and so there is uh, some economic diversity in the electorate as well. There are also diverse backgrounds. People come from all over the world. It's got one of the largest Jewish communities in Australia, and a lot of families came here from Europe around the time of World War II, but there are also people from uh, other parts of the world too, South Africa, New Zealand, the UK, uh, and other places, and and so it, it is a very harmonious multicultural community. Now you mentioned your medical practice. You must have the biggest focus group in the seat. What are people saying about this election, and especially about the issues? People are very engaged in this election. I usually try to steer away from political discussions during my consultations, but when people do offer an opinion, that they usually say that uh, that they appreciated what I stood for and that they are very engaged in the outcome of this next election. And I think there's definitely a renewed mood for change by many people in the electorate. The teal contests are a sort of sub-election within this wider election. They've formed a loose network which has had the government and other critics labelling them as fakes or as a party. But has this networking been a strength for them? Well, there's nothing fake about these independents. They are truly arising from community grassroots efforts. You know, it's almost a Trumpian allegation to say that they're fake independents. Uh, Interestingly, the independents haven't been taken seriously until quite recently as as a a, a movement and and this work's been going on in the community for several years in some cases they've been building support listening to community concerns they've been identifying suitable candidates and getting their candidates out to meet the community and then planning a campaign and there is strength in this networking it's it's really important uh, to, to that there is has been networking it's about sharing knowledge about how to manage a campaign and bearing in mind that like my campaign in Wentworth in 2018 many of the volunteers have never been involved in a political campaign in their lives and so it's a steep learning curve and so sharing knowledge between the campaigns speeds up that learning curve and uh, there've been lots of community independent web- webinars on issues like managing a campaign or you know how do you go door knocking and uh, on issues like climate integrity reducing vehicle emissions all the sorts of issues that that people are out there talking about in their communities and then cross-pollinating that knowledge and and the discussions about those issues and and there's definitely some common ground the teal candidates uh, including of course Allegra Spender have been under pressure to say what side they support in a hung parliament now you actually operated when the Parliament was hung briefly under Scott Morrison. You also, at that time, pushed legislation through to bring asylum seekers and refugees from offshore for medical treatment. Can you tell us something about how you handled that minority situation? Well, firstly, I'd say that I think independent candidates are right not to be drawn on saying which side they will support in the event of a minority government because they need to wait to see what the next parliament looks like and see what signals 
the electorate is giving them. And uh, in terms of how we managed uh, what I prefer to call a balanced parliament or a minority parliament, uh, listening to the people working in the sector, uh, particularly with refugees and people seeking asylum, uh, about the most pressing problems for them was the the first step, uh, and then setting priorities for action. And in this case, it was the medical evacuation of critically ill refugees that was being obstructed by bureaucratic interference. And then we discussed the sticking points with Labor and the Greens and we worked through solutions on issues like national security concerns. And then once we had agreement, we sought expert advice on drafting the legislation. So it's about prioritising, it's about listening, it's about negotiating outcomes and then delivering. And I think it's the Medivac legislation was a fine example of how a healthy minority government can work. Just finally, were you tempted to stand at this election because observers say you would have had a very strong chance of winning? It was obviously tempting because uh, I felt that there was unfinished business for me, but the timing for this election just didn't work, uh, mainly because of the urgency of the COVID pandemic. And I've been working with um, groups like Sage. Uh, and, you know, obviously with my clinics, we needed to focus on getting our clinics set up for managing the COVID situation, making sure our staff were able to work safely, setting up protocols for vaccinations uh, and getting the, the, the messages out to the public about what they needed to do to try and uh, support uh, the government's efforts in getting the pandemic under control, not just at a, at a local level, but at a community level. And I really felt a strong responsibility for managing the implications of the pandemic for, for my colleagues and my patients and the wider community. So I've been really happy to provide some background support for some of these fantastic independent candidates. So just on the pandemic, where do you think we are? Have we moved beyond it or are we still really in a phase of it? We're really still very much in the thick of the the pandemic. Anyone who uses words that imply that the pandemic is over is deluding themselves or trying to delude other people. Uh, we, We now are facing a situation where COVID is uh, one of the, if not the leading cause of death in Australia. This is really serious. We have one of the highest rates of transmission and infection in the world, and we don't appear to be taking it seriously enough or doing enough to control transmission. And so I think that this will need to be a very strong focus past the election to see what we can do for the the current and future health of Australians. Yes, it's interesting that really there's very little discussion of the pandemic in this campaign. Karen Phelps, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Michelle. That's all for today's podcast. Don't forget to check out my Wentworth Project articles on the conversation. There'll be another focus group report before the end of the campaign. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you might like the Conversations election podcast called Below the Line, hosted by former ABC presenter John Fain. To listen and subscribe, search Below the Line on theconversation.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. That's all for today. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.